Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Catherine Oliver. Black communities in the U.S. breathe dirtier air than communities that are predominantly white. According to research aggregated by the American Lung Association, black people face higher exposure to air pollutants and suffer greater risks of premature death from particle pollution. This episode of Follow the Data is the second of a two-part series that includes panels from Bloomberg's 2022 Power of Difference Summit. That was held in partnership with Bloomberg's Greenwood Initiative, which convened speakers from Bloomberg Philanthropies and other critical organizations to discuss how we're tackling climate action in overburdened and underinvested Black communities. The 2022 Power of Difference Summit also highlighted the Black Wealth Data Center, conceived and funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies Greenwood Initiative and incubated by Prosperity Now. That's a leading nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., focusing on racial equity. The Black Wealth Data Center's Racial Wealth Equity Database gives policymakers and the public access to data by race at the local, regional, and national level to empower them to take action to address racial wealth inequities that exist today. Garnisha Ezediaro leads the Greenwood Initiative, That's a national effort that aims to accelerate the pace of wealth accumulation for black individuals and families and address systemic underinvestment in black communities. On this episode of Follow the Data, Garnisha is joined by two leading experts working to protect underserved communities from climate change and environmental injustice. Jacqueline Patterson is the founder and executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for Black frontline climate justice leadership, and Mitchell J. Silver, the principal of urban planning at McAdams. That's a land planning and design company. Garnisha, Jacqueline, and Mitchell will discuss how historically marginalized populations are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change and environmental injustice. They also share examples of communities that are actively working to combat these challenges. Today, we will be in conversation with two extremely talented leaders. But before I get to that, I want to tell you a little bit more about how Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Greenwood Initiative is working on environmental justice. One, we in the Greenwood Initiative have collaborated with our environment teams as well as our government innovation teams in helping to launch the local infrastructure hub. It is a $50 million initiative to help cities nationwide access the federal infrastructure dollars that are currently available. This effort is really focused on driving economic recovery and also thinking about advancing racial wealth equity and climate change in the communities across the country. Beyond that, Bloomberg Philanthropies is working with grantees to do necessary work in communities, including the Strong, Prosperous, Resilience Communities Challenge, that's a mouthful, (laughs) which works to build community wealth building infrastructure and an investment and partnership with Propeller in New Orleans, an accelerated program that works to grow and support black entrepreneurs seeking to tackle social and environmental disparities. So with that, I am so excited to welcome 
Mitchell and Jackie to the stage. Mitchell J. Silver is one of our nation's most celebrated urban thinkers. He is currently a principal at McAdams, a land planning and design company. He is responsible for providing advisory services in urban planning, parks, and public space planning with a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. He is an award-winning planner with more than 35 years of experience and is internationally recognized for his leadership and contributions to contemporary planning issues. Also, Jacqueline Patterson, we're going to refer to her as Jackie today, she's given us permission to do that, is the founder and executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for Black frontline climate justice leadership. She has worked on a myriad of justice issues, including gender, race, economic, and environmental justice with a number of organizations, including the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, IMA World Health, and the organization she co-founded, Women of Color United. Before founding the Chisholm Legacy Project, Jackie served for 11 years as the Senior Director of Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP. We know that while all communities are threatened by climate change, Black communities are disproportionately subject to environmental impacts, inequitable policies, and practice. For example, 68% of Black people live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant, a reality that increases birth defects, disease, asthma, lung disease, learning difficulties, and lowers property values. With facts like this one, it is arguable that we should all be advocating for environmental justice. Jackie, I'll start with you. Given your experience and national leadership on the front lines of climate justice, can you share why you believe that climate change is both a civil and human rights issue? Yeah, thank you. This data is so critical to understanding the depth and the breadth of the impacts. So we know that African-American children are three to five times more likely to, to um, experience an asthma attack and, and, and have to enter the hospital. We know that African-American children are two to three times more likely to die of an asthma attack. We also know that um, you talked about property values, that if you're living next to a toxic facility, your property values are, are on average 15% lower. And the property values are directly what pays for our schooling system. And so when kids are unable to go to school because of poor air quality days because of their asthma, or they're unable, to, they're in school and they're unable to learn because lead and manganese are some of the, the toxins that come out of those smokestacks. And then the schools are under-resourced and, 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 and therefore they're not getting the same level of education we also know that studies show that if you're not on grade level by the third grade, you're more likely to enter the school to prison pipeline. And we also know the, the criminal justice um, challenges that our communities face. So this is where we see the intersection of environmental justice and education, environmental justice and public health, environmental justice and criminal justice, and, and so forth and so on. So these are the, the myriad, as you say, um, uh, civil rights implications just on the driver side of climate change, not to mention when we talk about the, the impacts in terms of shifts in agricultural yields. Already 26% of African-American families are um, food insecure. And with the shifts in agricultural yields, that means that 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 lack of access and affordability is only going to worsen. We also know that our, our communities are more likely to be in floodplains. After the flooding that happened a few years ago in Mississippi, I went through the community 
and um, in, in Tunica and some other places and found that so many of the communities that were flooded out of their homes were, were of course, African-American families. And then we also learned that, that when people, when, when the flooding happens, that's when people find out that they don't have the flood insurance clause is going to be able to. And so, the, again, how this ties into the economic justice issues. And we also know that we're more likely to be coastal dwelling. Therefore, as we see sea level rise um, resulting in people being displaced by, by disaster, then it's our communities that are going to be displaced, that are already being displaced um, first and worst. And so those are just a few of the examples of the many intersections. Just a few. I mean, even in looking at the data and hearing you describe just the many, many impacts that are affecting people's daily lives mm -hmm. as well as their trajectory you know, we cannot escape the interconnectivity, as you said. And so we're going to get in in this conversation, you know, what each of us could do about it, as well as some of the things that both Mitchell and Jackie are seeing across the country. Mitchell, I want to toss it over to you because, you know, one of the things that you have said about public spaces is that they can be the front line of defense from some of these issues. And, and we just saw some examples from the last panel of using public space. But tell us about your philosophy around that. Well, for some that don't know, I served as uh, the last Parks Commissioner here in New York City for seven years. Uh, right before I came, we had Superstorm Sandy. I was praying that during my time there would be no crisis and then COVID-19 hit. So it really elevated the role of parks. Uh, and every city has public space. Every city has parks. And it's an untapped resource. Mm. On average, about 40% of a city is in the public ground, that streets, sidewalks, parks, public spaces. And when I became commissioner, I wanted to make sure that these were not just green spaces that sit in isolation, is that in the age of climate change, they serve a very real purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, besides being for physical health and mental health, but they are the first line of defense. One example, New York City has 525 miles of coastline. Mm -hmm. Of that, 155 miles is within a park. So we look to the future about what can we do. Uh, we want to play a role to address climate change. So now those shores, those parks became the first line of fence against a storm surge. Mm -hmm. And so if you recall, we were able to rebuild the Rockaway. Uh, we have now worked, we I keep saying we, I am former parks commissioner, they. <laughs> it's, it's hard, it's it hard to share that, yeah. <laughs> uh, the work they're doing on Staten Island, I know people were a little bit disturbed, but you know we had to elevate East River Park to protect the Lower East Side that was inundated during Superstorm Sandy. Hunters Point South is a great example. That is a floodable park, uh, so that when the, the tide rises, that park is protected. But there are also places where you plant trees. A simple tree has such an impact on the environment. Clean air, clean water, it cools the planet and absorbs carbon dioxide. And just focusing not just on parks, but on neighborhoods, particularly those are underserved that don't have a lot of trees that do have a lot of vehicles and highways and cars, that it can also help address it. And so I encourage people, whether in the public sector or the private sector, to reimagine the use of your public space. It is not complicated. Uh, when Michael Bloomberg was mayor, he launched a million tree campaign. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to do it in 10 years. It got done in eight years. And now there are other places across the planet that are trying to replicate it because that simple thing as a tree can do so much. So, you know, and, and I, I hope everyone who's listening is also hearing why we are connecting and why we look at this as a wealth issue because we're talking about the assets of homes. 
We look at it as an intersectional issue. I want to, um, I'm going to toss this question to both of you, but, but Jackie, I'm going to come back to you um, because I want to make sure we're not making an assumption. A lot of times people hear climate change and we talk about that. And we also hear terms like environmental justice and, and all of these are movements that are happening. But I know it's particularly for the black community, environmental justice holds a deep history. And I know you've been a huge part of that. So can you mm. explain to us the difference between and the intersection between those two movements? Yeah, absolutely. So the environment, in some ways, the climate justice is a, a subset of environmental justice because environmental justice talks about the the unequal um, distribution of the benefits and burdens around the environment, whether it's access to to park spaces or or otherwise. And it also talks about the disproportionate impact of environmental toxins and so forth on communities. When we talk about climate change, it's the it's it's similar. It's the it's the disproportionate impact of climate change. And, and in some ways, the drivers of climate change are all rooted in the environmental justice struggle. So those mm -hmm. same facilities that have been polluting communities are the same facilities and practices that are harming our environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mitchell, you have been, you know, both in the private sector and a public sector. What are some of the things that the public sector and the private sector, as well as other communities could do to activate in this area? Well, for one, um, there's a big conversation going on right now before reparations would be a word nobody would use now, is talking about repairing past harm. Mm -hmm. And that is now a conversation happening more and more. It's not just a monetary contribution to those that were harmed, because uh, generations were harmed mm -hmm. in different ways. And so now, more and more, in practice, projects that we pursue, uh, a lot of local governments are saying, we want to figure out how to address the past harm and find out what it is. Uh, but to do that, I think we all should follow the lead of Fresno and, and California, which is they first wanna make sure they acknowledge, apologize, and then atone. And it's not just public sector, it's private sector. They all have to participate to figure out how do they address some of that past harm. It takes very different forms. It could be, as we saw, the creation of a public space, removing uh, a criminal justice complex is a project we're pursuing now, and the black community has a prison and a youth prison facility right in the middle of their community with a court. And so it's time to figure out how you remove it, relocate it. Uh, so to me, it's really thinking about what is that harm, have an authentic conversation about what that is. It is generational. So there are people that have to understand what living here did to us, and then you can figure out how to go to the next step. Secondly, we also wanna make sure, and this is so important, that we really unpack what diversity, equity, and inclusion means. Mm -hmm. Far too often people say, what can I do? That is the wrong question. The first question is, how do you feel? I remember after the death of George Floyd, people came to me and said, what can I do? These were well-intentioned allies, and I said, that's the wrong question. First, ask me how I feel, and once you understand that pain, then you can talk about what can I do or what should I do. So for example, I'll give you my working definitions. Uh, equity means fair and just. Inclusion means to be welcoming, that I belong here, given a sense of belonging. And diversity is the value of different perspectives. To me, it's so important when you understand those words, it's not something you do, it's who you are. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't come from that state of mind, that value system, then everything you do is gonna be a program. Let's do a DEI program, let's do this initiative. It has to come from a very different place. So all the work that we do, even in New York City, 
forever there were signs that said no loitering in public space. Mm -hmm. Now, the word loitering is to sit or stand idly by with no apparent purpose. That's what we do in a park. But <laughs> we hope to. that rule yeah. can be racialized. Sure. And if there are five sure. black and brown teenagers saying, excuse me, you got to move along. So because you have those lens, you look at everything very differently. We look at the equity in our parks. Mm -hmm. We look at the equity of how uh, resources are distributed throughout the city. And so for me, first and foremost, is understand that these are words, it, you have to embody them in a state of mind and a value, not a program. And then as you approach communities, uh, environmental injustice, uh, then you start to be very vigilant, mm -hmm. to make, vigilant to make sure it has changed. Uh, case in point, West Harlem, where I started my work early in my career. In West Harlem, they had a sewage treatment plant. Mm -hmm. They had uh, a wastewater treatment plant. That's Riverbank State Park. That's where they process poop. Uh, and then they had a bus depot all within one location and then a highway. Mm -hmm. I mean, that community was so burdened by all of these issues, but there wasn't a strong desire to say we have to fix it. Sure. Luckily, a group called We Act that we teamed up with was determined to make a change because this was an injustice, it was wrong, mm -hmm. and it was something that first we had to understand how the people felt. Sure. And I learned for the first time, I went to community meeting, that they were telling me you can get asthma from roach droppings. Is mm -hmm. that true? Okay, I don't know if it is or not. <laughs> She's gonna tell us some other but things. But it allows you to <laughs> yes. approach a community with a very different mindset, yes. to be more purposeful and intentional about why things have to change, particularly in communities of color. So, so uh, Jackie Mitchell is, is giving us some examples and from Fresno to the work that has happened in, in New York. We know that that work is not just driven by really smart and committed people in City Hall, but a lot of times it is communities and activists and a gathering of many different groups who are fighting for many years yes. even um, to, to help create and spur some of this change. Could you talk about the, the front line, what that looks like, mm -hmm. and what components are actually necessary to get on the radar of our institutions to help create change. Mm -hmm. What's key to to really communities galvanizing is the is vision, mm -hmm. vision, imagination um, of what could be. And so we have community like um, Highland Park in Michigan where they had their uh, the streetlights turned off um, for non-payment of the street because of the uh, municipality itself fell on hard times. And so not only was the streetlights turned off, but then DTE came and they took away the street poles because they decided they were never going to pay those streetlight bills. And so the community was in the dark and it was a community that, you know, that had crime issues and so forth. It was a, it was, yeah, it was a ch challenging community. Can we, but can the, we pause there real quick? I just mm. want to make sure everybody heard that. So you're saying that there was a city that neglected to pay the power bill. So not only were the lights turned off, but the actual poles yes, were removed. Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure that yeah, everybody There's a video that. I show where people, they, it's a video showing the company coming and taking out the, the street poles and driving them away on trucks. That's exactly what happened. And so the community, you know, just rose up and they started to have bake sales, lemonade sales, whatever they could do to start to crowdsource funding. And they put together, they put together enough funding to get solar panels to then, and then they found, they got some poles and put the solar panels on the poles. And now they have their own community owned lighting system um, for the That's, community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, Part, part of what is happening, and, and it, it was evident again in the panel before and, and many of what, and what you all have seen, 
is that there is this local innovation mm. and creativity in the approach where, you know, systemic racism or injustice or disinvestment has happened. And, and we see that pop up in cities across the world, but definitely around this issue increasingly across the country. Where are those sparks and promising practices other than the ones you've already mentioned that, you know, we all should be keeping our eye on whether we want to get involved or, or just help create and spread those models? Yeah, so another example I would give that's very inspirational is Spartansburg, South Carolina. I don't know if you know the work of um, now Representative um, Harold Mitchell, but but back in back some years ago, they had a situation where they were surrounded by multiple Superfund sites and and so forth. I don't know if folks know what those are, but basically sites that that have kind of legacy pollution. So they had nine different site like toxic sites, whether it's landfills or other, other places around them. And so the community was really just inundated with pollution. And so, but they started to organize once again, and they they were able to get um, with Harold Mitchell's leadership a twenty thousand dollar grant from from EPA. And they used that to start to seed 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 the work that they were doing. So they did the work to kind of remediate and uh, address those toxic facilities. And then they went on from there. They started to, to see the value in themselves and their communities. Because when you're in a situation where you're being dumped on and poisoned and contaminated, you start to really lo lose that sense of self-value. But they really were able to pull that back in once they started to get rid of, of this, these toxins. And so they went from there to start doing work around um, home ownership for the community. They started to do work around youth leadership. Now, 20 years later, they've had $300 million in investment over the years um, from, from, the, from the public sector as well as from the private sector in terms of social impact investing. And it really just took, like, uh, started with an assault, unfortunately, but then it took the vision of the community. It took the, the community valuing themselves and knowing what they're worth and what they're, what they're, um, they deserve, and then just organizing around that vision and, and, and continuing to expand the vision as the assaults went away, and then they started to see possibilities. And then, uh, again, they, they were able to organize enough to attract resources to be able to build to where they are now. Mm -hmm. It's really a very inspiring story. The only program that comes to mind, this is in South Africa, this is another tree campaign. We thought the Million Tree Campaign was huge. I think they went to something like 10 million trees uh, in 10 years. They got this whole community involved in this effort. Uh, children love to be engaged in planting trees. They call it the hope tree uh, to show some aspiration about the future and to really explain the impact just growing a tree will do for that community. The tree planting campaign is one of the easiest to do and has a huge impact and you can get multiple generations to get involved. So that is something that should somebody in the private sector want to invest and get involved, to me, that's a very, very beneficial program. Mm -hmm. I think about our history here in both media and storytelling as well as data. So I kind of want to switch a little bit to that frame. I'll ask how important are narratives and, and storytelling as we go into this partnership with cities and communities thinking about climate change? Uh, I see Jackie shaking her head. I'm going to go to her. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, we we know the narratives that are so often out here. There's this notion of kind of 
job-killing regulations versus actually health-preserving regulations. I mean, when you have communities that are surrounded by these toxins constantly, then communities being able to tell their own story about how they're being impacted. I think of a community like Randolph, um, Arizona, which is a freedman settlement founded by people who were emancipated from enslavement. And so they, they were, there was a gas plant that was being um, expanded there. The community was already suffering from extreme health challenges and so forth. And so when this gas plant expansion, it was almost like it was definitely going to go through. It was just basically a rubber stamp situation. And the community went and they testified in the Public Service Commission and they talked about those health challenges that they were facing. And they talked about the people that they had buried. They talked about not being able to, to live like other people because of the extreme health impacts that they were experiencing. And from there, the Public Service Commission went, you know, one by one, the, the commissioners began to actually understand from hearing the stories of these communities. And they ended up being successful in blocking the expansion of this gas plant at, in the end. And it was because the community had the opportunity, well, they really pushed, <laughs> pushed in to be able to tell their own story. So people actually understood that it's not just this kind of one-sided story like the growth and prosperity through this gas plant. It was on the backs and at the stake um, and, and uh, of these community members. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of many. But um, but they, th there's an African proverb that says that until the lion has its own tells its own story, the tale of the hunt will always go to the hunter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, yeah. So thank you. And and Mitchell, you are an urban planner, and folks are still learning exactly what that means and why that's so important in our spaces and in our communities. And we know that there has been a tremendous amount of uh, policy and practices in the planning of cities um, that actually have resulted in you know, disenfranchisement of people that have resulted in the lack of resources or situations like what you mentioned before, or I think Jackie yeah. may have mentioned where you've got, you know, three very toxic things in the environment in a, in a community. Yeah. Can you talk about the role of urban planning? Sure. Well, first, let me point out a book I think that was transformative. Uh, sadly, it wasn't a book that was offered when I was in grad school, but since The Color of Law was written, it opened up everyone's eyes in a very deep way. To put it bluntly, and this is a story that's now being told, that discrimination, racism, uh, systemic racism was built into the fabric of America through our policies, our laws, our regulations, and that's the way places were developed. It was not by accident. We know about the redlining, the segregation, all those other things. So when people take a step back and look at communities and saying, well, look at how it is, that, that was intentional. Mm -hmm. It was planned where people were not able to live where they wanted to live. And a lot of black wealth was stolen because they just could not get a mortgage or acquire. If they did get a mortgage, the prices were so exorbitant, they just went broke. So that is now a story that's being recognized. People are saying, well, why do we have to pay attention to that now? Study after study will show you a direct line between that red line community and where it is today. Secondly, communities were placed next to undesirable land uses, toxic locations, prisons, railroads, and it just, uh, or industrial uses that were just not healthy. And you see a lot of the health disparities that you would not see affluent communities being developed near those locations. And that was perpetuated year after year, generation after generation, and it's an issue that still wasn't settled. Having said all that, then comes along urban renewal that said, look at how disgusting you live, not their fault, we're now gonna wipe you out, relocate you, and build something different. So this is something that planners today are coming to terms with. 
Uh, there is a document which I am so happy uh, is about to be released. The American Planning Association, I served as president, is doing its first guide on looking at equity to analyze zoning and development regulations. Nothing like this has been done before, and they're going to compel local governments to examine their zoning regulations. We already heard about single-family zoning, about how exclusive it is, about how damaging these zoning regulations are, and now how do you do an audit to change it going forward, to avoid being located to undesirable land uses, to make sure there's a buffer between residential and industrial. So this is going to be a landmark document coming out to end this year. I can't wait for it to come out because I've been preaching this for many, many years. But now we have a roadmap and a tool for people to use to start addressing some of the past wrongs. But you know, many places that I work are places that have been disenfranchised, and you see that this is now decades of disinvestment, under-resourced, segregated, urban-adult, on and on and on, and we have to stop playing the victim and figure out how a way of lifting these communities up. Absolutely. Jackie, can you talk about a little, Mitchell talked about like the, the laws that, that had been, right? And, and we hear the stories and we've seen great reporting around redlining and the impacts. But a lot of times, and even we found ourselves doing this work at Bloomberg Philanthropies, people talk about this in the past as if it is something that happened long ago, like long, long, long yeah, ago. Yeah. And we heard some examples today. I mean, I think about when you say the house that I grew up in, the, the across the street, there was a live train track in the people's backyard. And so I remember shaking and hearing those sounds. So, you know, it, these are things that are in our lifetime's very current. Can you just reflect or offer some reflections on, you know, all of us aren't going to be our activists, all of us aren't planners, all of us are not, you know, in leadership positions in institutions to directly impact the use of public space and or the use of public resources. But we all are citizens and we mm -hmm. think about climate. We're all humans. And we have seen, even with COVID-19, how interconnected we all are, even when sometimes we act like we're not. So what are the actions that folks in this room, folks who are listening in, can really take in the environmental justice movement? One, I just want to begin to look at the opportunity about our public space on public ground. The opportunities are enormous. When I was commissioner, we had so many partnerships uh, with the private sector, whether it was a service day. And to me, that is something you can actively do. There is so much to be done in our environment, uh, to me, that would help a great deal. So to me, the first thing is, is that either you can help to pay to support those efforts or get directly involved. New York City has 30,000 acres of parkland, and all that land needs a lot of love and attention. And so there are a lot of programs that if people want to give on that level, they can certainly do something. If they want to invest in some of the larger programs, to me, that's critically important as well. So to me, that's one way that they can do that and ensure that uh, in terms of whether people are now doing more ESGs, more social responsibility, uh, and how they're investing in companies that do work, so they can send a very strong message that the environment is important, social responsibility is important, and set those standards very high that if they do have DEI as a requirement, that if they're very serious about it, not program, and as I said, it's a state of mind and values. So I'm gonna suggest, because I love parks so much, that that is a great canvas. It's there. People love it in dense cities. It's your front yard, your backyard, your social gathering places. And to me, that's a very easy way to get involved, but also has very huge satisfaction in terms of that rate of return. Thank you. Jackie. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, so I would say, I mean, so for one thing, if, if one is working in a, in a corporate setting, there's a lot of examples of, uh, of great partnerships we've been able to engage in, whether it is the fact that Microsoft, for example, as you, as some of you may know, the Microsoft data centers, some, some of them use as much uh, power as small nations. And so they have, they approached us when I was at the NAACP about actually procuring the, the, the energy from renewable energy that's created by communities. Cause a lot of, now there's community owned renewable energy sources. And they've expanded from that to, to looking at working with communities and, and getting vendors and so forth for the work that they do from the communities that they are located in, being very intentional about that. Uh, we know that companies like Ben and Jerry's, for example, are very good about sourcing their, you know, whether it's the brownies that are that's being made by the Greystone Bakery in New York that is um, that that employs formerly incarcerated persons, um, or it's uh, the other the uh, some of the women women artisans that they that they will engage with for their different products. So thinking about really thinking out of the box in terms of every every um, aspects of supply chain or service chain and how we can make sure that we're uplifting community. So it's self determination, really in, in encouraging and and contributing to community self determination. I would definitely say that as well as even as individuals, there's different ways we've had a number of folks. Who will just kind of come and say, you know, we 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 see that there's an issue, and we see that the, the communities are out there, and 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 I just want to offer myself whatever I have um, to give, and so people will just come and volunteer in a community and just be at service to the environmental justice organizations in their community or virtually, and that you never know what I mean, whether you're willing to write a press release or help somebody to tell their own story. Or, or there's a myriad types of things that people can do. There's, it, it, it really makes a difference for communities that are so under-resourced but are, but are facing such um, mountainous challenges. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot you really quickly, Mitchell. Mm -hmm. I know you got one last point. I'm going to ask you to wrap it in one thing because we intentionally talked about the Black Wolf Data Center and data disaggregated by race for a very important reason that connects to this issue. So I'll ask you, in 30 seconds, I think our timing is blinking. Why is it so important to have data about our communities disaggregated by race, especially as it relates to this issue? It uncovers connections, insights that you normally would not have made without someone doing the algorithms or doing all the connections to bring it to the forefront. So to me, it's vitally important. In New York City, we use our data to identify park equity found out 10% of our parks had seen no investment in decades. So data is important. It reveals things you wouldn't normally see unless someone made those cross connections and then delivered it to you so you can, you can use it. Thank you. Yeah, and on that note, we're actually just about to come out with this report um, called Who Holds the Power about Public Utilities Commissions and Public Service Commissions. And we were even shocked ourselves at the data that we found in terms of the lack of representation, given that the folks who are um, most energy burdened are the folks who are least likely to be on Public Service Commission, the Public Utilities Commission. Then you see how why the decisions that they made go in this direction, because as Bob Marley says, one of my favorite artists, he says, who feels it knows it. And it really is like the, the motto of representational governance. And so the data really reflects that, that we don't have representational governance when it comes to public service commissions, public utilities commissions, and so many of our offices. And as we uncover that, then it's a call to action, a call to representation, a call to democracy. Well, uh, please join me in thanking both our panelists.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data, advancing racial wealth equity, economic recovery, and climate change all go hand in hand, and Bloomberg Philanthropies is committed to doing so to make communities safer, healthier, and more prosperous for everyone. Many thanks to Garnisha Ezediaro, Jacqueline Patterson, and Mitchell J. Silver for joining us for the 2022 Power of Difference Summit hosted by Bloomberg. As always, the views of our guests are entirely their own and Bloomberg Philanthropies hasn't independently verified any of the statements made by this episode's guests. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data. This episode was created by Amy June, Devin Alessio, Erica Goodmanson, Amanda Mack, Nelia Stevens, Rebecca Carrero, and Elliot Popko. To learn more about Bloomberg Philanthropies Greenwood Initiative, visit Bloomberg.org. You can follow the Black Wealth Data Center on Twitter and LinkedIn to learn more about platform updates. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.